Hello, Manchester Creek. Welcome to our virtual Good Friday service. My name is Jeffrey Baker. I'm one of the elders here at Manchester Creek. And I know the other elders and I really miss you. And we re really wish we could see you in person. But unfortunately, uh, this pandemic has made that impossible. And we really believe that the best way to serve you is by following the social distancing guidelines and uh, meeting virtually for the time being. But we still want to get together and worship virtually, especially on such a solemn day as Good Friday, such a great day as Good Friday. And to that end, we will be delivering a time of teaching and devotion, which is uh, right now, and I will be delivering that. And directly afterwards, Joe Tyndale will come, and he will deliver a uh, time of communion. And so even though we can't be together, we can worship together at this time uh, through the uh, study of his word, the study of God's word, and through uh, the remembrance of Jesus' death in communion. And so if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably have a good idea of why we call Good Friday good. Um, but it's possible, if you're like me, who's been a Christian for uh, over a decade, uh, its impact may have been somewhat I don't want to say deadened, because that, that seems such a negative word. But you know, when, when you hear something so great for such a long period of time, it doesn't always have the same emotional impact. And of course, if you're a non-believer, and you hear about Good Friday, and you don't have much idea of what Christians are talking about, it probably sounds very strange. Because Good Friday is the day in which, the uh, I guess, our primary religious leader, Jesus, was uh, brutally tortured and murdered. And if you know a little bit more about our theology, you know that we think he was not just a, a leader, but God himself, the second person of the Trinity, through whom all creation was made. And if you know that, it might seem extra strange that Good Friday is good, because we're saying that the one through whom all was created was murdered by those he created. Yet somehow... It was a Good Friday. Well, I think the best way to solve both problems, uh, best way I found to really renew my excitement about Good Friday, and the best way I found to explain why I have excitement about Good Friday, why it's such a solemn occasion for us, is to review the story that it's a part of and to explain its part in the story. A couple scholars, uh, uh, a couple I can think of are N.T. Wright and Christopher Wright, not related, um, from whom I'll be cribbing a little bit liberally. Uh, the way they've explained it, it, I think, in this case, is helpful. Uh, and it's to see the story of the Bible, the story of history, as a story, as a narrative. And I don't know uh, about you, but when I was in high school, or uh, maybe middle school, I don't remember when, uh, I was taught how to analyze a narrative. I was taught that narratives have structure. And that structure is usually a five-act structure. And believe it or not, this might sound very corny, but I think you actually can fit the Bible story into a five-act structure. And that's in just a quick review. One minute for those of you who may have forgotten or didn't pay attention in English class, because let's face it, a hearing about story structure can sometimes take away from the story. But in this case, I hope it helps. Act one is exposition, and that is when you set up the story. That's when you set up your characters, you set up the world, and you have what they call the inciting incident. It's the problem. 
Act two is rising action, and that's when the hero comes in and he tries to solve the problem, but he keeps encountering a lot of opposition. And all of this opposition, honestly, it might even make the story seem hopeless. It might make it seem like the problem can't be solved from the perspective of the people who are in the story. And then there's act three, and that's the climax. That's the turning point of the story. That's when the hero and the villain get into a fight, or uh, uh, it's the point of highest tension, and it's when the biggest problem is resolved, when the act that is the basis of all other, uh, um, all other problems being resolved happens. It's not the case that all problems are resolved in the climax. It's just the biggest fight, the event happens that is the basis for the resolution of all other tensions. That happens in the climax. Act four is falling action, and that's when uh, you start heading towards the conclusion, um, other problems start resolving themselves, and then Act 5 is the denouement when all the other problems are resolved. But again, everything hinges on Act 3, and that's the climax. So how does the Bible tell this story? Well, Act 1 probably isn't a surprise. It's in Genesis 1. And God sets up the story, and he sets it up like this. First, there was no world. There was no heavens. There was no earth. There was nothing. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He, created, he separated land and sky, earth and sea, day and night. He created a world in absolutely perfect balance. He created humankind in his image. And if you read what scholars have to say about that, there's a lot of detail. Uh, but one really important thing is that being made in the image of God is related to kinship. It's related to being a part of God's family. So a part of being made in the image of God is being in relationship with God. So God created a perfect world and perfect balance, and he created man and woman to be in relationship with him. He also created man and woman. They're in relationship with one another, and they're to rule over the earth and rule over the earth well as vice regents of himself. So that's the exposition. But what's the problem? Well, the problem that happens in Genesis 3. God gives them literally one rule. Don't eat from the tr fruit of the tree of good and evil. And I know a lot of people, I've heard some people say, how can God be mad at someone eating from the tree of good and evil if they haven't already had the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, and to be honest, I, I, I know that sounds silly, but really the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not the tree of ethical knowledge. It's good and evil is a, uh, it's called a merism. It's a uh, figure of speech uh, where that uh, uh, talks about the whole through opposites. So the tr knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge of all things. But the point is that humankind disobeyed God at the urging of Satan. And in doing so, that messed up the world and it messed it up badly. Um, by sinning against God, humankind put a barrier between themselves and God. And we can see this simply by the fact that God kicked humankind out of the garden, the garden in which he walked. That relationship that humans are supposed to be in with God simply by virtue of having been made in his image is broken. And with that, because of that sin that separates us from God, that breaks all the other balances. And I know that seems weird. It seems like something that, um, 
it doesn't necessarily make sense to us, but we learn in Genesis 3 that all these, these three things I mentioned, this relationship with God, the relationship with others, and the relationship with the earth are all thrown into chaos. Uh, God kicks people out of the garden, uh, ruining his relationship with him. He puts enmity between the wife and the husband, which is the primary relationship that was created. And he curses the earth. And in fact, let me find this in my Bible, but he says uh, uh, to the earth, thorns and thistles that shall spring for you, forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Remember that verse because it'll come up in a prophecy later. Uh, but instead of all the trees bearing good fruits, they're going to bear thorns and thistles. Somehow human sin and the guilt of human sin is connected to the world not working properly. It's connected to our relationships not working properly. It's connected to all the chaos of the world. Um, and if it sounds like I'm really beating that point down, it's because that's the inciting incident of the whole story. That's Act 1. After Genesis 3, Act 1 is over. Act 2, rising action, where the, uh, the problem gets worse. And the hero, who probably no surprise, is God himself, uh, starts trying to solve the problem. And of course, when God tries, he succeeds. Nevertheless, the way this story is told, he encounters a multitude of problems that probably made things seem hopeless from a human perspective. And those problems come forth in Genesis 4. You know, in Genesis 1, if you remember, God gave Adam and Eve one com uh, a command that was, be fruitful and multiply. It was a great command. It was a command that was really a blessing. Fill the earth with your... Um, your children. But what actually happened, the very first story after the fall, is about the perversion of that command, where the offspring, the uh, multiplication of Adam and Eve, simply murder. One simply murders the other. It's a horrible story. And you would think, man, that's really dark. You know, the very first thing that happens after creation falls is that the one of the greatest blessings God gives is turned to perversion, uh, the perversion of murder. But it gets worse uh, because then you hear about uh, um, Cain's... You, the first thing you get after that is you get a uh, genealogy and you read the gene genealogy and while Cain's uh, murder is obviously cast in a negative light, Lamech, one of the people in that uh, genealogy, brags about how he's going to kill more people than Cain. And so that curse, so what you begin to see there is that sin ends up being not just, uh, not just something that is done wrong. It is something that's done wrong. But you begin to see sin almost as an infection that infects everybody, that everyone is under, uh, that everyone is captive to. And how can you tell they're captive to sin? Well, look how bad people get once sin enters the world. Um, <laughs> And when sin enters the world, as we, way later, the way Paul will tell this story is that in Romans 5, uh, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and with sin came death. And you see that, chapter 5, right after hearing about Lamech, you, have, you get this, uh, Adam's descendants to Noah. And I'm not cruel enough to read the whole thing to you here, but if you uh, read that, you'll hear a constant refrain at the end of every generation. And he died. 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 Enoch got a good bit out of it. 
but then uh, uh, where God actually uh, took him. But then the next paragraph, and then he died. And then he died. It's like he's making a point. Sin entered the world, infected everybody so that nobody could even escape its grasp. Nobody could escape the power of sin in their lives. And death came with sin, and everyone died, just like God promised. And then it gets worse. In fact, before Noah, uh, when I was studying this, I read the passage everyone reads and everyone knows to talk about uh, uh, how everyone is the total depravity is the uh, official theological term. And that's the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But I wonder how many people read on and hear the next somewhat horrifying verse that at the time of Noah, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It was so bad that God regretted making it. But apparently not so much that he did not feel a need to save the world. And he did that through Noah. He called Noah, you know the story, Noah builds the ark. Uh, God uh, cleanses the world with a flood. And you begin to think, well, this is great. God's going to start a new humanity through Noah. Uh, the one righteous man on the earth. And that sounds really great until you get to the end of Noah's story, which ends in drunkenness and incest uh, by Noah. So that's horrifying. And it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse and worse until you get to the Tower of Babel, the astounding arrogance of the Tower of Babel. That arrogance that believes that they could, the people of Babel, which is really just a very thinly disguised Babylon. Babel is clearly intended as a way of making fun of the nation of Babylon. That'll be important later too. Um, but that astounding arrogance to believe they could build a tower to heaven and make a name for themselves. But out of that, God began his story uh, God continued, he didn't begin. God continued his story to save the world. And he did that by calling Abram out of Babylon. Uh, he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. Um, so out of this place of astounding arrogance, the height of human sin up to that time, God calls Abraham and makes a nation for himself. And he promises Abraham that he will make him the father of many nations and that through him all nations will be blessed. And you can see where I'm going with this story, right? Because here, what God did through Abraham, he created Israel. And they went through some hard times, right? They were uh, imprisoned by Pharaoh, uh, made slaves in Egypt. God saved them from Egypt, uh, really set them up with a covenant and made them his nation in in very formal terms in Exodus, gives them a law. Uh, and that law is, it's a good law. It tells you what righteousness is. It, um, see if I can find the passage here, but it, it's, uh, it is a law where uh, it's, it's a law which shows what righteousness is. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when God describes the law, he says that when um, non-Israelites look at Israelites who practice it, look at the Israel while they practice the law, um, they will see 
and hear all these statutes, and they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that also has a God so near to it as the Lord, as our God is to us whenever we call upon him? That was the idea behind Israel. And he also gives them sacrifices in the law to remind them of the cost of sin, that the cost of sin is death. And he's with his people. He's with his people in the tabernacle and later in the temple. His presence is actually there. And he gives, he gives you know, laws and rules that show how sin keeps you from his presence. But he, show, he has sacrifices which look brutal but are, and are brutal. But they're, they're ways of reminding the people that the cost of sin is death. And the uh, only way to remain close to God in sin is death. Um, and of course, we know that from Israel comes King David, and from King David comes Jesus, and from Jesus comes salvation. And so this calling of Abraham at the beginning of Genesis looks like a great turning point in the story. But honestly, it's still just act two. It's rising tension. Because what we find out is that that sin that has infected the world, that it's infected everybody so that everybody is under the power of sin, it includes Israel too. Even God's people, the very people through whom uh, God has called and through whom he, does, he wants to save the world are infected by sin and are in need of salvation. This becomes very clear in Genesis with Abraham who twice uh, tries to give his wife to another man to sleep with to save his own hide. Uh, it becomes clear in Exodus when, you know, I mentioned God gave this great law to make Israel his people separate from all the other people. But what I didn't say is that at the very moment Israel was, God was giving this law to Israel, Israel was creating an idol to worship a different God at that very moment. God leads them into a promised land and they refuse to go. They're, they're wandering the wilderness for 40 years and when they eventually take it, they put together the time of Judges. And if you ever read the book of Judges, it ends in one of the most horrifying acts I've, I've read in the Bible or in literature and it's at the hands of Israelites. They eventually go for a king and the first king they get is Samuel and Samuel is legitimately psychotic. Finally, they get to the great King David who, yes, he is known as a man after God's own heart. He's also known as a man who committed murder and adultery. And think about this. This was a king who told one of his subjects to sleep with him. That's, that's not consensual. He's also a, a man who, on his deathbed, wished for the death of his enemies. Read the, read the beginning of 1 Kings. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man who really struggled with sin. Sin has infected even the best of the Israelites. And that's not... In, I'm focusing on Israelites here, not, not in an attempt to be anti-Semitic, but because the assumption here is that the rest of the world is remarkably awful. If any part of humanity has a chance at being the best that humanity has to offer, it's the part of humanity that God has called his own, called out of that, the darkness of Babylon and um, uh, made his own people. But that doesn't happen. And in fact, when you continue to read through Kings, you see that they get worse and worse after David. And it gets to a point where the kingdom splits. In the northern kingdom, God eventually judges them by just really annihilating the kingdom and having it be taken over by Assyria. And the remaining part of Israel stays for a while. 
But after ignoring God's warnings and his patient um, forbearance uh, uh, in, in uh, judging that sin, God eventually determines that their sin is so great that he takes Babylon um, and has, sends them in exile into Babylon. And think about that deep irony. A- Israel was created by a man taken from Babylon, from the darkness of Babylon. But because of their sin, they were returned for a time in exile, back to that very darkness from which God called them. That's almost the end of the Old Testament. And to be honest, what you get after that is you have some prophets promising a future hope. And you see these prophets promising that hope in a couple of ways. Um, First, you see Ezekiel and Jeremiah who recognize that, you know what? The problem isn't just that we're not following the laws legalistically. The problem isn't that God hates us. But the problem's in our hearts. Our hearts are hard. And so in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, God promises that he'll solve even that problem. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And in Jeremiah, he says a uh, very similar thing in different words. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Think about that in the context of the story. That is a promise that through this time, where, you know, Israel is, God's people is not even able to follow the law because of the hardness of their hearts, that God will fix their hearts so they can. That's a great promise. And the promise gets greater because you remember the three things that were really uh, uh, destroyed by the fall is that relationship with God, relationship with others, and the earth relationship with God, and they will be my people. God promises to make him their people again. Um, what you get later in Isaiah is you get this whole wonderful picture of the lion lying down with the lamb. Um, you even see the picture of the nations coming to Israel. And God even says uh, in one chapter in Isaiah that Egypt and Assyria will call uh, God will call them my people. That is a wonderful Uh, vision of humanity coming together under God and God making them his people. And in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 55, I believe it is, 55, 13, if you remember what it said in Genesis, that the ground will bear thorn and thistles. In Isaiah 55, God promises that uh, he'll fix even that. And he says, instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So God promises to reverse the curse. And if you read uh, uh, even a little earlier than that, you'll see how. And he does that on the basis of of his servant, a suffering servant, who somehow represents Israel, but is also able to um, take their sin upon him. Uh, comes back to that famous verse, by his stripes we are healed. But all that from the perspective of Israel is in the future. At this point, at this point in the story, 
while God has been steadily working his purposes, he's running the problems and problems with his people, culminating so badly that he sends them back to the darkness from which they came. And the other thing I didn't mention from Ezekiel is that Ezekiel says God's presence left the temple. It's almost as though the curses for Israel at this point, the curses that came on creation came on them as a nation. And while there's a partial restoration at the end of the Old Testament, where people are, where Israel is allowed to return from exile, it's clearly nothing like what was promised in the prophets. God's glory never returns to the temple. In fact, people cry when they see the rebuilt temple, for they know. They know it, it doesn't live up to the glory, and they know his glory hasn't returned. And so really at the end of the Old Testament, you're left with this sense of longing, this sense of sadness that all of humanity has failed. <laughs> it's failed to live up to being the image of God that it is. And even God's people has failed. So it's really probably no surprise when you get to the New Testament and you hear Paul say in Romans, for no one is righteous, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And bitterness. Their fifth Feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. For, and later, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because that's really the state at the end of the Old Testament. And you know, you get to the New Testament and Paul, when he describes this problem, he does it in more personal ways. He does it... Uh, sometimes by, by describing what the life of an individual without Christ might be. That's what you get in Romans 7. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, we see that this way of talking about humanity is not unfair. I know that's something we rebel against. We like to say everyone has a, a, a little goodness in them, which is, which is true, but primarily everyone's under sin. And that's hard to take. But you know, if we're honest with ourselves, that hate we have for our coworker, um, that lust we sometimes feel, it's really, when you compare that to murder, you compare that to sexual exploitation, yeah, it's not as bad, but it's a difference of degree, not of kind. And when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that. One pastor, Joshua Butler, once compared it to the difference between a spark and a wildfire. Yeah, the wildfire is terrible, but it's the spark that causes it. And when we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we carry those sparks that cause the wildfire. And we know that God hates evil so much that he needs to snuff those evil sparks out. And all of this might lead us to despair. It might lead us to the place that, uh, of that character Paul assumes in Romans 7, where he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because all of this, as I mentioned earlier, all of this takes, is really dependent, really hangs on 
the sin that we are complicit in, the sin that has infected us, the sin that has made us guilty. And then you start thinking, well, how, how is it that you could solve that? Well, we know from the law that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, as it says in Hebrews. And we know that the problem is huge. We know that the blood of bulls and goats is not necessarily, um, not necessarily not at all enough to actually forgive sin. And we know that the consequences of sin, and we know that the, the bigness of sin, for lack of a better word, is huge. I mean, after all, all of the disorder of the world hangs on it. No goat can do that, right? No sheep, no ram can do that. You need a greater sacrifice. And what, we've, what we learn in the New Testament is that sacrifice needs to be something that accounts for the seriousness of a sin against an infinite God. And the only way to do that is if that sacrifice is God. And so... God became a man. Despite millennia of human beings disobeying him, despite the evidence of peop even people that he called and he made special, made himself disobeying him and turning away from him so bad that he had to send them back from whence they came for, for a while. Despite that, God decided the best way that he still wanted to forgive us of our sins, and he would do it by becoming the sacrifice on our behalf. So in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, became 100% man and became what Romans 3.20, uh, excuse me, Romans 3.25 uh, describes as a, quote, propitiation to God for our sins. And that means it's a sacrifice that covers the guilt of our sin and turns away God's wrath from it. God became that so that we would not have to suffer the death that we deserve. He did that to cover the guilt of the sin or to put it the way uh, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he, this is the father, made him, the son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took on all the sin and guilt of the world. And in doing so, we learned he broke it. <laughs> Romans 6 is amazing in this regard. Um, we hear that, uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What's that mean? Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We get to share Christ's death, which means we get the punishment that he took. Or rather, maybe a better way of putting it, more accurate way of putting it, he gets the punishment we deserve, which means we're going to get the life he got. God has broken the power of sin over our lives, that power that was over humanity for millennia since Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple. God broke the power of that by taking the consequences of sin. Remember, all those consequences that came from sin. Broken relationship with God. Broken re a relationship with others. Broken relationship 
with the earth, all hinged on our guilt. And God took care of that guilt in Christ. So we learn in Romans 6, first thing, he took care of sin, which meant the power of sin that reigned over Cain and influenced Cain to kill Abel. The power of sin that reigned over Israel and influenced them towards idolatry. God broke that. We don't have to be under that anymore. And it says if, in, later in Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice this past tense and this future tense. We have been united with Christ in a death like his. So Christ has taken our punishment. What Pastor Darren will be talking about on Sunday is we will be united with him in a resurrection in the future. So to go back to that story framework, Act 3 was Christ dying on the cross. Act 2 had all those problems with humanity as a whole, with the people God has created. But Act 3, the climax, the turning point, the point on which all other things hinge, was when Jesus died and took away the one thing on which hinged all problems, <laughs> all the brokenness of the world and humanity. Unless that, and I guess lest that seems like I'm saying too much, I mean, what about the world, right? Sure, we may know from this passage or other passages like in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where it talks about how God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, so this solves the problem of reconciliation with God. Okay, we see how that happens. We see that he made us into a church, which is all of the ethical admonitions, and not all, but many of the ethical admonitions you get in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians are about living in community well. So God's restoring relationships. But what about the world? Well, in Romans 8, uh, God says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Christ's death frees us from sin, brings us back into relationship with God, uh, allows us to not sin, is the basis on which we will be resurrected and is the basis on which God will fix even the world itself. So where does that leave us now? It leaves us in Act 4. Act 4 is... Uh, <laughs> falling action. The turning point of the story is done. And we look forward to the denouement, which is described in Revelation, where God closes out all the, everything else. He finally defeats Satan, throws him into the pit, finally defeats death 100%. But there's an intermediate time where the basis on which all those things has happened has occurred. But there's still little conflicts that need to be resolved. God wants more people to come to know him, for one. Um, 
God wants us to uh, uh, become more like him in the meantime. But as we transition and start transitioning towards the communion part of our service, I really want you to think about the greatness, think and meditate on the greatness of what God has done in Christ. Think about the rather extreme implications of it. Growing up, I had heard the, truthfully the story of how God had forgiven me for my sins, and that is true. And in doing so, I don't think I ever really realized that his forgiving me for my sins is part of a story that began at creation and will end when God uh, recreates uh, uh, by renewing the earth, and that I get to be a part of that. I get to be an ambassador for the coming kingdom. I get to be a little pocket of, of the kingdom in the world here at Manchester, here uh, when I'm at home, when I'm at work. I get to be an ambassador for God's kingdom during this falling, uh, uh, falling action phase of the story. God still wants to use me to bring other people into the kingdom. That's kind of, a, it's kind of an amazing thought, isn't it? It's kind of an amazing thought, too, to think that God, through all of the struggles, through all of the tensions, that came through the story, God still had a plan. And that in that plan, he resolved every major problem that occurred. So now what I want to do is I'd like to pray. And then after this prayer, Joe Tyndale will lead you in a, um, in a time of communion. So let us bow our heads and uh, pray to our Lord and Savior. God, you are, you are an incredible God, and you are a God that takes, takes the long view, <laughs> the millennia-long view, and we thank you for that. And we thank you, God, for being a God who has given us the story <laughs> that enables us to see that long view in your scripture. Thank you, God, for becoming a human being. Thank you, God, for becoming a sacrifice for my sin, for the sin of the world. Thank you, God, for loving us so much despite our, <laughs> our extreme undeservedness. Help us to meditate on how great you are. Help us to meditate on the greatness of what you've done. And that you're sovereign over it that it is just an intermediate part of the story and that you're sovereign over its end. That even in times like this, when it's really trying, when we can't be together and when things are uncertain, that you are a God who resolves those tensions. You are a God who solves, who has solved the problem of evil and will finally resolve it. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.